Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Welcome to Space Junk. My name is Annie Hanmer and I research space law and international space cooperation at the Sydney University School of History and Philosophy of Science. This week I sat down with visiting NASA Sagan Fellow Dr Ben Pope to talk about Space Force. We also discussed our vision for the future of Australia's new space agency. Ben did his undergraduate degree in physics and astrophysics at the University of Sydney. He then completed a PhD at Balliol College, Oxford, where he most notably competed on the winning team in University Challenge 2017. Ben currently lives in the USA, where he researches planets surrounding other stars in our galaxy. So, (laughs) what we wanted to talk about today is Space Force. Space Force. Space Force. Space Force. Sorry, uh, I, I should say, hello, I'm Ben, hi. but we, we've been having this conversation already yeah, this uh, is a con- the previous um, Yeah, it's session. a continuation. Gosh, yeah. we're, we're all out of sync, Ben. Get it together. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. About, I, need to, I need to be on board. Yes, We're going to talk about Space Force. It's like, space Force. It's like Border Force. But border Force. Space Force. Oh, um, God, Border Force. Uh, look, we'll deal with that. But Space Force for the moment. Mm. Um, so US have announced... Uh, was this one announced? No... That's so right. Trump announced it months ago, but Pence yeah. re-announced it last week or something. Right, and um, announced that there was going to be a separate but equal. Uh, imagine using the words separate but equal unironically as the US president. It is amazing. Unbelievable. Uh, separate but equal branch of the military yeah. um, dedicated to space called Space Force. Space Force. Um, with merchandise, did it's- you hear? Yeah, you can buy the merchandise, not from the United States government, but from the Trump campaign website. Hmm. Yeah. Things that what make a country. <laughs> a functioning government, uh, not but, a kleptocracy. But Ben, you actually live in the US most of the time. For my sins. So um, I'd like to, to go to you first and hear, what do you think about Space Force? Space Force sucks. Can you be more specific? I can be more specific in all of the ways in which it sucks. Okay. But in particular, because it violates... I mean, look, you know, I'm not going to tell you a space lawyer, you know, the ways in which it would violate treaties, but it violates deep principles of, of the ways in which humanity as a whole manages its common heritage of the Earth as a system and space as a system. This militarization when there is no militarization really to speak of so far, um, risks threatening, you know, I, I, I'm just sort of almost apoplectic. I can't even tell you one reason that's wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, okay. Um, Kessler syndrome. Have you heard of Kessler syndrome? I've heard of Kessler. Well, oh, I, I, I call it have. the Kessler effect. The Kessler is that effect. incorrect? I don't think it's incorrect. I, I think, think it's, it's the same thing. People just making up dramatic words for, well, frankly, quite a dramatic thing. But for our listeners, the idea is that Space debris, debris, space debris, or I should say for this podcast, space junk begets more space junk. Um, Because actually the relative velocities of objects in orbit 
if they even have slightly different orbits, can be, you know, kilometers per second. They, these can be extremely high velocities. So even, you know, a little, a little, you know, screw or a nail or a rivet or a, you know, um, whatever. When going at that velocity, I mean, that's faster. That's three times the muzzle velocity of a rifle. That's serious speed. And it will take out pieces of space equipment. Now, the trouble is, this then creates clouds of debris. Mm. And the debris of secondary collisions can then do the same thing of having hypervelocity collisions with other spacecraft, which creates more debris. And so, um, depending on the, the details of how it happens, we haven't had this happen yet, thank God, uh, you could end up filling um, some large region, potentially all, of near-Earth space with uh, extremely hazardous debris taking up all or virtually all existing satellite infrastructure and yep. rendering it impossible, if not permanently, then for a very long time, to launch any further satellite infrastructure. And you, you were telling me just earlier today about the, the needles that almost gave us a, a, a sort of a mini Kessler effect. Oh, yeah, that's a great story. Um, 1961, uh, so, so around 1961, basically communications were done by bouncing waves off the ionosphere. Um, ben will know more about the science of this, so I'll just fill in the interesting story. But essentially, um, it was decided in the US that what they needed to do was to make the ionosphere more bouncy. So they decided to um, to send up um, hundreds of millions of tiny, so 1.8 centimeter long, uh, little copper needles. These are less than the width of a hair, um, and, and launch them into space and send them careening off into the ionosphere. And then the ionosphere would be much more bouncy and would allow for more reliable communications. Um, they did this the first time, and in fact, um, the head of the uh, comparable Soviet um, astro mm. body, I, I forget the exact name of it at the time, came out and called the act deeply unscientific. Mm. Um, and there were protests all around the world when this happened. Um, and, and America, so the first launch didn't actually work properly, and all of the needles clumped together. So they did it again in 1965 um, and launched mm. a second lot. And that did work and they spread out uh, and it improved communications for approximately one month. And then they continued to spread out. Um, and mm. it's, uh, the problem is they're so small, you cannot track them. Mm. So one thing Australia is really good at is tracking space objects and space debris. And they mm. call it SSA, Space Situational Awareness. Um, Basically, it just means mm. what's going where at what speed and, and, and what trajectory. And you cannot track these little needles. Mm. So um, it, it's estimated that a lot of them are still in space and uh, many of them have fallen to Earth mm. because they're too small to burn up in the atmosphere. So, um, yeah, people always ask me, like, am I going to get hit on the head with a piece of space junk? The answer is no. Probably mm. not, but you might get hit on the head with one of these if you're hanging out at either pole, because um, mm. that's where they tend to fall. So, so interesting stuff. Go on. Go I, I on. don't know if you saw the the latest episode in, in Australia's um, tracking of space debris. You, you were probably at the conference where it was announced. Michaelia Cash gave a, a press release, she being our science minister or 
she science or is it innovation these days? I believe it's innovation. Innovation. I mean, what even is innovation? We've got a perfectly good word. Um, she was announcing how good it was that, um, and I don't want to pass judgment on my colleagues, um, how, how good it was that um, the Western Australian radio astronomers at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, ICRA, manages the Murchison Widefield Array, which is one of the precursors to the Square Kilometre Array, I'm going to unpack all of those in a, in a second, uh, had partnered with the defence contractor to track space debris. Yeah. Because you see the Murchison Widefield Array is, um, it's, well, it, it is one of the two largest low frequency radio telescopes in the world. It's, it's um, competitive in various ways with LOFAR, which is an instrument in the Netherlands. Um, and it's being built by the Australians partly as a way of testing the technologies that are going to go into the Square Kilometre Array, mm -hmm. which is a very large radio telescope planned to be built over the next decade. It's one of these mega projects I was alluding to earlier that really has caused so much political strife because it was originally they had to decide between Australia and South Africa who was going to get it. And, well, we can go into that later if you like. Sure. But um, the MWA is going to be very sensitive to um, basically commercial radio reflecting off space debris. And... The idea would be to use this to then track said space debris. And I thought, this is cool, because it's really cool science. But I was a bit worried at the precedent of talking about how much money it is, it's good to get from defence contractors sure, sure. Um, for um, space. And I know, look, I know, look, I have no pretensions that my, my favourite little telescope, the Kepler Space Telescope, was built by Ball Aerospace. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, a spin-off, a spin-off originally, of the company manufacturing the Ball Mason Jars. Hmm. Um, but Ball Aerospace, you know, make all sorts of military hardware. Um, and if it's not Ball Aerospace, various things, you know, James Webb Space Telescope, I believe is Northrop Grumman. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was actually yeah. at this conference. Yeah, um, well, tell me all about it. In Canberra um, earlier this year. In, in July, I think. Mm. Um, it was the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's um, Future of Space Strategy, I believe mm. it was called, something like that for Australia mm. conference. Um, and it was it was actually a, a fabulous event and very, very interesting and had mm. a lot of um, very high profile people's talking about what was going on in space in Australia and what should be going on. But there was, there was a military tilt to it mm. um, a lot of that was probably to do with the fact that it was being sponsored primarily by Northrop Grumman. Lovely. Um, and so, yeah, so I actually heard the, yeah. the speech of which you talk. Um, and yeah, there was a, a real discussion at the time about how um, Australia's space industry needs to, needs to partner with um, military companies and how that's a really mm. good thing for the space industry. And, and I, I, I sort of, I wonder about this too, because on the one hand, I think um, these are companies that have vast resources, mm. huge amounts of money to throw behind projects and, um, you know, they, they can, they can just make, they can make it happen. Mm. Um, and, and that's not, it's not that we don't have the money to do civil scientific space projects. We choose not to. We choose not to spend that money. Mm. Um, and the focus very much of the Australian Space Agency, as I understand it, is on industry, mm. not science, not technology, not, you know, not any yeah. of those things. It's about the industry and about bringing, 
bringing billions of dollars to Australia's economy through developing mm. a space industry. I don't think they're denying that there is a commercial focus. Mm. Um, it is hard to get away from some of those companies mm. because even if you don't mm. work directly with those companies who have the resources and have the money, then you will be working with companies who work with them or you'll mm. be working with banks mm. or financial institutions um, and that's its own area of you know discussion. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, but that, but that is really interesting and, and I don't know, to come back to the Space Force for a minute, mm. um, so the real concern that I have with the Space Force mm. coming from an international law perspective mm. is that international law works on basically the continuing enduring belief of people mm. that that certain things are true mm. so space law um you know the international treaty outer space treaty mm. exists not because of the piece of paper which has signatures mm. but because everyone who is a signatory to it continues to believe that it is in force mm. and that it has some power. It has no mm. inherent power. And people really struggle with this. But the best the best thing I can kind of link this to would be marriage. Mm. So if you get married and you sign a piece of paper saying you're married, um, you could have been living de facto for years and mm. nothing actually really changes. Mm. But the symbolic process of going through a marriage of sorting out your finances with your partner and deciding what you're doing, of mm, mm. figuring out where you're going to live, of um, making sure your parents have met. Mm. Um, and, and then the symbols involved. Mm. So like the, the walking of down yeah. the aisle, the cutting of the cake, all of that stuff is inherently silly. Mm. Doesn't mean anything. You can decide to mm. break up with your partner instantly if you want yeah. to. It's the modern world. But... At the same time, marriages still have some force and people will still um, view them as, as being important mm. and as, uh, as having some power. And so the same thing is true of international law. Now, the problem with Space Force mm. is that it, in its very name, mm. contradicts the principles and the norms and the symbols on which international space law mm has been built, um, the, the foundations of it. And the foundations of it are that space should be a peaceful area for cooperation between nations for the benefit of all nations. So mm. if you then appoint yourself the police force or you, or, you know, even just the use of the word force. They, they use the word war fighting domain in some of the speeches. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, people get um, so so. I posted something about this on LinkedIn recently, and I had mm. a lot of people commenting, and and not a lot, but you know, I'm not that popular. But I had a couple <laughs> of people comment. Yeah, we could all identify. A couple of people comment and say, "Oh, but you know, this has always existed. It's just been within the Air Force." Mm. The problem is, yeah, it's been within the Air Force. The reason it's been within the Air Force uh, is the same reason that you don't talk about your eventual statistical likelihood of divorce. Yeah during the ceremony. I mean, you, you don't talk about the fact that in all likelihood mm. your, your, you know, your partner's gonna run off with someone else. Like, mm. none of that is spoken about and for good reason. Yeah. Um, because it undermines the point of what you're doing in the first place. So, in, in some senses, talking about militarization or, or keeping the militarization of space 
even if the Space Force does exactly what the Air Force has already been doing, mm. it just does it under a different name. The very act of creating symbolically a Space Force mm. is incredibly destructive. And, mm. and, and that's hard to understand um, if you don't have oh, yeah. the, the background to it. But hopefully that's a good explanation as to why. I think so. And it will compel all of the other space powers to create militarized space agencies of their own. Right. Um, or uh, even even just justify them in having mm. those militarized space agencies. Mm. So, I mean, all like everyone knows that military stuff happens in space. Oh, yeah. Um, I, and I know you were saying before, Ben, that space has hitherto been quite unmilitarized. It's it's not true. No one's it's, fought a war in space is what I really mean. Well, yeah. but war has been fought from space like GPS, I for suppose. example, yeah. has enabled war to be fought. Mm. Um, and war continues to be fought through uh, through things like like even things as simple as jamming technologies mm, and satellite so on. imagery and you know. yeah it's it's all and actually at the conference I went to I was talking to some people from um, mm. the defense force in Australia who were talking about how there are levels of war and you can say there's you know all out nuclear weapons firing war but there's also like um, military no, like exercising military might through sailing through areas level mm. of war and it's all kind of on a continuum mm. and I haven't decided if I totally agree with that but certainly I think mm. space is militarized in the mm. sense that it's full of spy satellites oh yeah absolutely in the sense that it's full of surveillance it's full of um yeah it's full of positioning mm. if space was not militarized there would be no reason for like the european space agency to have their own galileo system yeah. galileo system or china to have their own system or yeah. you know all of that stuff um yeah yeah and, and we know their technology in the military space sector is far in advance of what we got so for example uh the hubble space telescopes 2.4 meter telescope um nasa got given one by the dod really uh recently and, and this has been a debacle because they got given one uh, and it was going to be um, a gift from the military of a, a spare spy satellite that was far out of date and would never be used by them. Now, the trouble was actually all of the optics wasn't to spec, but then Congress demanded that they, they build something with it anyway. So it, it's cost more than it would have to build one from scratch. Really? Yeah, it's been a bit of a debacle. The W first telescope, it, it's probably going to turn out very well. But basically NASA had to throw away everything but the mirror and then say that the mirror was the telescope and then build a new telescope with the constraint of using the existing mirror. Oh, no. Uh, which was very expensive to do. Um, but, I mean, that was an old telescope that's as good as the best one that's currently in space. Mm. Um, when the James Webb... I mean, this is, this is just a rumour that you hear at the pub at astronomy conferences. Um, I have no NASA inside information on this at all. Um, but when James Webb is... Um, launched it's actually a segmented mirror made out of little sort of hexagonal segments and these have to fold up to fit in the nose cone of the rocket that's going to launch it yeah and they unfurl in space and they have to unfurl to nanometer precision that's hard and there's a lot of people who say you can't do a segmented mirror like this in space and Northrop say yes we can and civilians say oh yeah prove it and Northrop say, you just have to believe us. Mm. And everyone's pretty sure that there are large segmented telescopes in space. And the reason that no one's freaked out about whether James Webb will work is because it's worked before. Mm. You know, that's, um, 
Yeah, I mean, we're pretty aware that there's a lot of this technology around. But as you say, it's about the norms of are you, you know, having weapons in space? Are you convincing other people that you're going to use space largely peacefully? Yep. Um, and, and I think this whole space force, you mentioned border force earlier, mm. but it's on a continuum with this sort of thing of taking um, civilian responsibilities that used to be seen to be for the public good, such as the Department of Immigration, yep. and rebranding them as paramilitary or military organisations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I very much worry about the creation of these paramilitaries. The, you know, Border Force in Australia and the UK and ICE in the US are both being used to harass dissidents. They're mm. both being, you know, they've got these powers that, you know, just throw habeas corpus out and, and you can just do whatever you like, really. Um, these are the creations of an authoritarian state to deliberately replace civilian, you know, um, functions of government with military or paramilitary alternatives that um, now people say, you know, abolishing ICE is impossible. You know, abolishing ICE is an extremist position. Well, ICE has only been around for 15 years. Mm. You know, it's not like the US was some hellhole before then. It's it's a lot worse now than it used to be in many ways. You know, ICE isn't some um, impossible to abolish thing, really, but there's this inertia in government that makes it very hard. Mm. To, to reverse these policy decisions. And so I think they're relying on that. And that's actually what I, I, I actually sort of feel is going to happen with Space Force, is that it, it's just impossible to reform the US military. If someone could reform the industrial military complex of the United States, they already would have. <laughs> you know, this is the, the largest organisation on the entire planet. And there's I just can't find it inconceivable that some guy thinking that space sounds cool is going to be seen as um, enough reason to fight all of the vested interests in particularly in the Air Force having its authority over space that there, there will be generals kicking and screaming in the Air Force before this happens. Well, this is what I hope. I don't know. We have to assume that it will happen. Congress is going to hate it. I mean, we can only hope. But ultimately, um, from an international law perspective, the mm. damage has been done yeah. because Regardless of whether it actually gets up, mm. um, Space Force signals clearly the US's intention mm. for space to be a warfighting domain. Mm. That means that if you're sitting in China, if you're in mm. Europe, if you're in Russia, India, any country with space capability, um, even Australia, mm. as, a, as a risk mitigation strategy, mm. you would have to be thinking very seriously about what you're doing with the military yeah. in space and mm. then... Um, whether you need to invest more in it and how you're going to do that. Mm. And I get the feeling that I get the feeling that in Australia the the approach is well what we'll do is we will invest in an industry and we'll get a bunch of people in basements um, coding and making mm. technologies and making nanosats and then those people will um, sort of hothouse at very low cost lots of tech mm. and then um, the military like Defence Force or so on, will kind of peruse all of the options, find the tech that looks really promising and then buy it, mm. basically. Um, and, and that's the way that Australia will develop tech rather than creating a NASA down under, mm. which would be responsible f- for, um, for all things space and, and kind of running its own projects. So that seems to be the approach. It's like, let mm. the market develop tech and then use what's useful mm. and the rest of it will just fail of its own accord or, or you know, possibly be 
brought up by other other mm. interests um, doing more civilian things in space. But yeah. certainly, that's that's the feeling that I got. But the weird the weird thing under neoliberalism is that there's just this persistent fantasy that the private sector will just provide the money for all sorts of public goods and that all you have to do is is you know just encourage innovation whatever bullshit mm. that is but really i mean the economy is about you know producing things maybe maybe i'm just an old school socialist or something for thinking that <laughs> um and if you're not if you're not competitive in that industry you're not just going to have guys in basements, you know, or women in basements or, or people in office buildings or wherever they happen to be and whatever genders they happen to identify with, um, producing high value things, you know, really, really cheaply with no public investment. Mm. Um, space has always been about massive public investment. Yeah. And uh, it, it seems extremely ahistorical to me for Australia to imagine that they can reap the rewards without sowing the seeds. Yeah, I mean, uh, it just seems mad. It's quite bizarre. I, I think I would, I would say two things to that. Um, if I can remember my first one. Aha, yes. My first one mm. is that if you're going to take the view that the private sector will solve it all mm. and they will fund all sorts of things, why well, have an agency? Well, <laughs> the agency is there to sort of facilitate. Mm. I mean, if you're looking at the funding the agency is mm. getting, it's minuscule. Mm. It's like half the funding Antarctica gets. Um, and most of Antarctic funding is spent on like getting cheese from point A to point B, <laughs> which is incredibly expensive in Antarctica. And I, I don't dispute that cheese is really important. It's super important. Super important. Um, we should have cheese in space soon. We do. Yeah. For, for Australia. Well, for Australia. Sure, sure. Maybe Vegemite. Australian cheese in space. Australian Vegemite. Vegemite in space. Space Bigger. Vegemite. Um, but, yeah. but what I was going to say is that you, you run the risk and you accept the risk Mm. that private industry will only fund tech for their own interests. Mm. So private industry does things on that basis. They're not they're not philanthropists. They're not like mm. going out there to be great. They will fund technology that they think is useful for what they're doing. And if the private industry is military based, mm. then you will end up with things with a military application being funded. That's not necessarily the the great sort of horror that mm. we might think it is because often things are developed in a military context and then mm, dual become, use technology yeah. well become civilian well dual use technology exactly like we often think of that in terms of giant civilian lasers stuff, yeah. getting rid of space junk oh no but we can also get rid of gps mm. ah disaster but by the same token yeah you mm. can develop a giant laser that can get rid of gps and then we're like wow we can use this for space junk yeah yeah that it runs both ways so that was the one thing i was going to say you kind of accept that risk and you accept that people have their own agenda when they're giving money if they're, mm. they're, if they're the private sector. Mm. The other factor, and this is something I brought up at the conference in Canberra, was this idea that somehow, as you say, we can sow no seeds and reap the rewards that, that oh, well, it doesn't cost money to sit in your basement and anyone can write code. The problem mm. with that is that, yeah, they can, but the good, the thing that NASA does and mm. does quite well is create the conditions for mm. a viable space industry that is a training ground for people. Mm. So that's like saying anyone can administer some first aid. So like we don't we don't need to in invest in like mm. full on medical facilities and organizations that oversee that process of training. Mm. Like it's it's all just fine. That's probably not a great analogy. But, but this is, this is yeah. a big cultural problem in in regard to code. But but you know NASA does just as an aside NASA that's exactly what my job is is a NASA Sagan fellowship is 
precisely about um, getting people who finish their PhDs into academic research positions. Mm. Three years, no strings attached. You just got to do science. Um, NASA's very good at doing these fellowships. They've got the Sagans, Hubble's, Einstein's, the postdoctoral program. Um, they clearly recognise their role to a large extent as about training, mm. um, of taking early career people who've done their PhD and saying, what's next? So um, I, let me be on the record saying I greatly appreciate <laughs> that, uh, among other things. I greatly appreciate many things about NASA, but certainly my paycheck is one of them. Um, <laughs> but as, as regards technology and its costs... Um, yeah, I, I recently read a very interesting essay saying that software engineers shouldn't call themselves engineers if they don't have proper engineering oversight. I thought this was very interesting where people mm. talk about how engineers are a profession, you know, and by profession I mean that in the narrow sense, as you, as you understand, of, of um, a liberal profession which has um, a formal qualification process, a regulatory um, and licensing authority, and um, the idea that you're an autonomous person who works for a fee for specified goals, but you have some kind of standards that have to be adhered to both ethically and practically. Mm. Software engineering doesn't. Some You can just sit in your basement and write code. That's actually the problem, is because you get massive fuck-ups in, in large software engineering projects where they're being done, you know, based on just open source code, amateurs, you know, inexperienced people. There's that side of it. But there's also the side that there's no ethical oversight. Mm. And there's, um, there's this, you know, move fast and break things was what Facebook's motto for a long time. <laughs> well, they broke the whole world, yeah, you know, well with the 2012, uh, 2016 election. So well done on that, guys. And I say guys because it's a whole Silicon Valley bro mentality that's behind it. You know, the Mark Zuckerberg. Anyway, but I don't need to get too much into that. But... There's, um, and I think this ties into some of the other things we were talking about that we might talk about on this podcast of um, this um, sort of fetishization of technology yep. uh, at the expense of um, understanding the politics that surround it. Not even, it's not even that people don't understand the politics that surround it because all the people who are funding this clearly do. It's a giant sop to the industrial and military complex and it always has been. That's willfully f- not communicating this understanding, you know, this, this um, pretending that two plus two equals five, if you want to, mm. about, oh, there's, there's no ethical consequences to, to this and there's no, you know, ethical responsibilities that we have. And this is true whether it's Facebook or whether it's, um, you know, Space Force or, or whatever, you know, the idea that technology is its own good. I think it's clearly not. Yeah, well, we have a lot of examples of that in in history. Um, the the largest one probably being the nuclear bombs. But uh, yeah, I, I mean that's pretty phenomenal. But something that often gets overlooked with science, um, and we've spoken before about this mm. idea of the cartoon scientist being devoid of humanity. Mm. Um, obviously, that is not the case in reality. But ethics are hugely important to science. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I actually. Uh, taught a subject last semester oh, yeah. um, here at Sydney University. I was one of the tutors for a subject called Science, Ethics and Society. Sounds promising. Which, Yeah, which is purely about that. So it's saying, okay, like we do science, but what are the ethical ramifications? How does ethics play into what we're doing? Um, hmm. How do social factors affect what science is done and who does the science and where and how? And, um, hmm. and all of those things are super, super relevant 
and I think especially um, especially when we're talking about things like space force, mm. there's a there's a real desire to see it as something that's purely cool, like something yeah. you see in a movie. And mm. I, I was shocked by this. I so I um the other week I was perusing my podcasts as usual, and I mm. thought I wonder if anyone I know has done anything on space force, and I. I just typed it in and searched it up and found this like random two Americans talking about Space Force and I thought, all right, I'll give these guys a go. And I thought that the podcast was satire for 20 minutes. Dear. 20 minutes, Ben. Mm. Because they were talking- And you'll never get them back. They, I know, and then I realized and I felt physically ill, but they were talking about how Space Force was gonna be awesome and how they were just imagining like guys in space suits mm. shooting at each other in space. Mm. And and then one of them was like, oh, but how would that work? Because you don't, you have to be connected to the spacecraft by like a wire, or you float off. So you'd be like, you'd be, you know, you'd be fighting, and then you'd have this wire, and you'd have to like maneuver it. And mm. I was just, I was just gobsmacked, and I thought, are you serious? And they were mm. so enthusiastic about it. And then the the podcast continued, and I realized it wasn't satire. Once they got onto other issues, and I I realized that in fact. Mm. That was what they thought mm. um, and that perhaps that view is representative of a lot of people and I've seen on like just on Twitter even in my constrained mm. Twitterverse that <laughs> there are people who are saying wow Space Force is gonna be awesome how cool um, mm. I'm gonna go buy a hoodie like oh. uh, it's nuts like do people not realize that the, the ethical impl implications of escalating conflict something we don't like on mm. earth to the heavens essentially like but but yeah. you know to, to war space. in heaven war in heaven well and oh and did you ever hear about um the nuclear testing that happened and messed with the van allen belts yeah 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 i don't see i don't know i don't really understand all of the physics behind mm. this but i believe it was in the 50s um yeah the soviets and the americans were setting off nuclear explosions in space mm. um to to do experiments essentially yeah, and they, they messed up the van allen belts hmm. um what does that actually mean uh it created um an anomaly of extremely high radiation flux in part of the earth's radiation environment which is uh, actually hazardous to space flight and to this stopped, day it stopped communication satellites from functioning hmm. um yeah to this day it remains yeah, it, dangerous you, it's detectable yeah really yeah see i thought this effect only lasted a couple of years i thought it still detectable maybe it's not dangerous anymore but maybe i'm okay. not an expert on this but um no, no, no. i'm not really a space physicist so much as an astronomer but um <laughs> that's okay but no people were were um reckless about it but i think maybe i'm going out on a limb here but i think people's reactions imagining that this is cool you know th there's all this sort of literature that often gets derided as you know postmodernism or whatever but you know things like the society of the spectacle or, you know, you read, say, um, Umberto Eco on the hyper-real and so forth. Um, this idea of people engaging not with, um, uh, with one another or with communities or with material situations, mm. but primarily with representations of them mm. as, as their day-to-day -day experiences. And we, we live in this world where, you know, literally the DID and the CIA have funded the vast majority of media for decades. 
I know, look, I know I'm sounding like a crazy conspiracy theorist, but no, no, no. I mean, you read articles about how, um, for example, the Iowa Writers Workshop, yeah, that was a CIA project, or the Paris Review, yes, CIA, Partisan Review, CIA, Jackson Pollock, CIA. Yeah. Legit? All, all of this, you know, new um, uh, abstract expressionist art movement of, of the 60s, 70s and so forth was, was um, CIA well, and DOD funded propaganda to try and show American superiority in art over the Soviet Union. Well, I'll tell you what, they had excellent taste. Oh, yeah, no, but some of them did. Like, they got some really good people to do it. Some of that abstract expressionist stuff is brilliant. Oh, yeah. Love I, it. I was reading this article about the Iowa Writers' Workshop, which I hadn't really heard of before, but if you're in lit crit circles, is apparently like the thing that created late 20th century American literature. CIA. It was entirely wow. them. Okay, um, all right. And, and to this day, the Department of Defense um, is an enormous funder of, of films. For example, Iron Man. Iron Man, DOD money. I can see that. And so there's this massive cultural machine to portray um, militarism not only as normal and fun, because we live in... We live in the forever war now of, you know, we've been at war since, what, 2002 was mm. Afghanistan the mm. start? 2018, you know, there are people who'll be voting next year who've never known a situation in which we're at peace. That's nuts. It's incredible. Yeah. But people engage so consistently with representations of war, of technology, of space that they actually don't really think about material realities of them. They, they, they really want to think of Space Force as being cool because cool exists in a much more material way in their lives than war does. That's a fascinating counterpoint to what happened in the Vietnam War, mm. which was that the war was televised for the first mm. time and people saw the reality of war. Yeah. And then you had shows like MASH, um, mm. which were ostensibly about the Korean War, but mm. really about the Vietnam yeah. War, which were kind of bringing that reality to life. And, and that brought huge public protest mm. against war as a concept. Mm. And, you know, that not that fascinating that now we go to the movies and we watch mm. Star... Well, Star, I love Star Wars, but we watch war films mm. um, or we watch... Netflix and we watch representations mm. of war mm. and that is what if that is what informs what we imagine it to be but but these these cultural landscapes like I was reading David Graeber's most recent book um, uh, a couple of weeks ago um, what was it called uh, bullshit jobs it was his, his expansion yeah, on his yeah. bullshit jobs essay um, and he had a really interesting section on um, sort of the um, people's attitudes towards work through history but he talked about newspaper articles um, from the late 1800s in the United States. There was a big scare that all the cowboys were Marxists. Hmm. I shit you not. This is the thing. Apparently, it was there was an enormous amount of left-wing politics um, on the prairie <laughs> in the 1880s. Wow. Um, that and, you know, and and you know, there was other research a few years ago that about a third of the American, you know, um, settlers moving west to... And let, 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 you know, let's go, not go so into settler like, colonialism, which was its own kind of violence. Sure, but, but we're let's talking just, little house on the prairie yeah, type stuff, right? 1880s, 1890s, whatever. A lot of the people who were moving west um, 
were black. Mm. It was like, I'm making up this number, but it was like a fifth or a third or something were black. Are they in cowboy movies? Are there Marxists and black people in cowboy movies? Because that was apparently the milieu that they existed in. Obviously, that's not what continued. Mm. Um, but what we really think about cowboy movies is a specific moment of cultural history where people were, you know, in the 1950s trying to create a kind of American identity um, where, you know, this, this um, manifest destiny of empire was sort of sublimated into the individual experiences of, you know, the beauty and terror of the prairie and the solidarity among friends, mm. ideas that you can individualize and emotionalize political processes, but that the actors in this scenario are all sort of homogeneous representatives of like, they're all white, ma white male, Christian, you know, whatever, you know, but the, the Wild West is actually a cultural artifact now and then you say something about a cowboy and you're never talking about the black cowboys or the or the weird you know communists of nevada or whatever was happening but you're talking about this idea of and the same thing about space well space yeah. was space was from the beginning exactly this it was it was televised in in, in the extreme you know like you know one small step for man you know this this whole thing about space was out about present and it's so compelling i mean you must have seen the right stuff it's like one of my favorite movies. And yeah, but this, this, um, the way that they take some kind of machismo and nationalism and make it seem aesthetically compelling hmm. in the space race is really about, you know, it's about creating a vision of America. And the way of doing this about space force is also a vision of America. And yes. it's, it's whether or not they ever launch a missile or even get their branding up or they've already they've already done something. They've already um, just stroked that nationalist ego of like, yeah, we're capable of violence and it's going to be really cool. Yeah. And I think what you were saying there about how you, you, you create a representation of a thing mm. and then that thing in itself has a certain power mm. and then you can trade off that power to do mm. other things. Mm was was very much the case at this conference where they were talking about how there is this great uh, you know kids grow up with this image of 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 astronauts mm. and they think i want to be an astronaut mm. and people saying oh this is great because now we'll have a space agency in australia so australian kids can grow up thinking i want to be an astronaut mm. but we're not going to pay for that well no but then in the next sentence it was pointed out that mm. in fact the australian space agency will not Mm. be training astronauts or have its own astronaut program mm. so in fact that's a lie but when we say space agency mm. what we're talking like what we're conjuring for australia is this idea mm. that we can be on par with nasa yeah um and what we're imagining is the space race mm. we're imagining australia is kind of getting on board with that and so i just think in in a sense i would rather that australia went down that road mm than that we decided that we wanted to get on board the, with the, 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 space the Space Force, force. kind of narrative. Um, Don't you think it's yeah. interesting that all of the press releases about this said that Australia was the third country to launch a satellite? I don't know. Did, did they say this at the conference? I, I was watching the ABC News yeah, like last yeah. night or something. 
And um, they were talking about Australia was the third country to launch a satellite and we haven't been back to space since. And this is a very tendentious reading of the history because of course the satellite was launched from Australia and several were, um, but with uh, an international consortium particularly mm. involving the United Kingdom. Um, yep. That Australia was participating in sort of global imperial systems as the launch site. Uh, and, and, and provided a lot of technical material, but um, they they really overstating Australia's role. But they wouldn't like to state that contemporaneously, in fact, at almost exactly the same time, we were launching nuclear weapons at Maralinga. Mm, that was the yeah. British. When it's right. when it's the space exploration, it's Australia. Mm. But when it's nuking uncontacted Aboriginals, that's the British. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's all the narrative, isn't it? It's what mm. narrative you pick and it's what symbols you choose to yeah. deploy almost. Yeah. Um, and it, it's almost in a military sense, this kind of um, strategic deployment of symbols towards yeah. a political end. Look, I, I'd rather we thought ourselves as the country that launches, you know, satellites rather than nukes uncontacted Aboriginal peoples. It's, it's better to have that fantasy of our country as something to aspire to, even if we acknowledge the uh, the ahistoricity and the other options that we've really explored in the past. I think, yeah, I think it is vital to fully understand our history mm. and what happened and, and make sure that doesn't happen again. It is also important for Australia to be really cognizant of the symbolic import mm. of creating a space agency. Yeah. And... I mean, I think it's great. It's like, do. don't get me wrong. I'm sceptical of no, some of the details, but I'm pretty pleased. I think pleased it's great overall. too. I'm, look, I'm very excited about it, um, if mm. only because it justifies my decision to leave a very high-paying job to do something quite tenuous. Good luck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but I think, I actually think, and, and I've been writing a paper on this, that Australia has a huge opportunity, um, given our good relations in mm. international circles. Mm. So, like... In some ways, Australia has a bad reputation, but in most ways, Australia yeah. is considered to be a good citizen on the international stage. Um, and particularly, we've earned that reputation through our work in Antarctica. And I think that we have a real opportunity here to use that position and to use our good relationship with mm. the US, with the UK, with China, mm. um, as much as we can avoid uh, you know, as Conflicts much as that, thereof, yeah. Yeah, as much as that relationship can, can continue to be good. Um, mm. And to the extent that we can, Russia, mm. to in fact prevent the militarization of space. I agree. And the way to do that is to prevent the militarization of rhetoric mm. and norms surrounding space. And it's actually one of those things where um, you know, like people say, oh, you can't possibly stop them blowing each other up. No, no, we can't. Like, mm. we, we can't. But Australia can do what it does in Antarctica, which is mm. to conspicuously and almost, um, almost like in the most unsubtle way, mm. like it's almost callous, uh, perform mm. norms mm. on the global stage and then talk about at international forums how we have performed those norms and oh, how yeah. we continue to and how everyone else should too. And it, it all creates... And I, I was writing this and I realised that I was basically advocating for propaganda. And so I had to put a note mm. to myself to, to make it sound less like that. But what I'm talking about is, um, yeah, is, is using our agency 
like it's it's great to have a space industry. Hmm. Don't get me wrong, but it but we also I think have a responsibility and an opportunity to go out um, hmm. and and use diplomacy not in a not in the sense of diplomacy is what hmm. happens when we're not fighting wars, hmm. but in the sense of diplomacy is a separate but equal um, <laughs> sure. a separate but equal force no diplomacy is, so it's not is a the useful thing to war do. by other means <laughs> yeah i wouldn't like i wouldn't like to say that because i think that implies that war is inevitable which i disagree with no, but I hope it's, I hope but not. diplomacy is force by other means could we hmm. say or or um it's a non-violent way hmm. of of getting people to toe the line hmm. And that is actually not only in our interests as Australians, mm. because we don't want to get blown mm. up, but it is actually, we're actually obliged to, if you read the Outer mm. Space Treaty in that way, which I do, which is that we, you know, that it is to be for the peaceful mm. um, use of, for the benefit of all nations. Uh, Australia is, is obliged to do our part there. So yeah. I, I would like to see us do that. I think the most conspicuous way in which we could do that, and this is perhaps going to sound self-serving, but this is actually why I work very happily as a NASA Sagan fellow in the United States, which is a country that's a basket case at the moment, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the thing that gives me hope about America, is, for example, the satellite that I work on, Kepler, when it was revived as K2, so I won't go into the nauseating details, but satellites need wheels. You don't normally think of spacecraft as needing wheels, but they do, because you need to be able to point them. And so you can't fire your thrusters every time you reorient. Instead, you actually spin little flywheels inside. Mm. Uh, especially if you want to get precise pointing, it really has to be these flywheels. And uh, we call them reaction wheels. Um, and it was launched with four wheels, and one broke very early. But that's right, because you got three dimensions of space and you had a spare. So it worked again for another three years. And then another one broke. And so on two wheels, it couldn't point effectively, but they figured out a, an orientation perpendicular to the sun where it was actually um, pretty well balanced. And they were able to use this very effectively as K2. Um, it had to be called K2 because the a formal mission ended when it, when it lost its second wheel. Um, but what I think is just fabulous about the mission that I work on um, is that all K2 data, to the extent that is possible, are made public immediately to absolutely everybody on the planet. You can log on to the Mikulski Archive for Space Telescopes in Baltimore and download data about any star that you want that's been observed. They, the, you know, the caveats, in fact, are really only that they download it and they sort of process it a bit to make sure everything's of sufficient quality and prepare it in formats that are convenient for the public to read. And this actually takes a, a, you know, a couple of months sometimes, but um, that's really for everyone's benefit that they do this pre-processing. They don't do any science with it. They actually have a policy that they're not going to look for planets. They're not going to measure the masses of stars with astroseismology. They're not going to look for supernovae. That's for the scientific community to do. And they're there to provide a service to the scientific community as an observatory. Hmm. And so this is true of K2. Um, it's also going to be true of TESS. And this was actually, so TESS, which was a sort of a successor mission that was launched in April. Um, and this is something that was really built off the success of K2, but also off a heritage where 
even though NASA or in you know the Australian case of the CSIRO or whatever would operate observatories where some fraction of the time were reserved to its own staff and some fraction of the time were open to the public through proposals that were competitive. Um, many observatories, and Australia is very good at this, have what we call an open skies policy, is that you don't have to be from that country to propose the use of its observatory. The proposals are rated only on their scientific merits. And so you can be in Zimbabwe and say, I've got the best idea for how to use parks and the open skies time will let you do that. Hmm. And this is true of many observatories. And so I think the best way that Australia could do um, something for the global community to show its bona fides would be to continue this open skies policy and do it through the Australian Space Agency with space telescopes and actually do some science. Um, and I know they've got the explicit policy that the Space Agency isn't for astronomy, the Australian Research Council and the CSIRO are. But I, I think that to the extent that it's possible administratively, um, we should consider building a major Australian space observatory and dedicating either all of its data to be public or all of its data, a large, sorry, a fraction of its data to be open skies proposal based. And I think showing that we've joined the international scientific community of space telescopes um, would, would be really a very positive thing for the space agency. And I think there's many telescope concepts which we could do for a reasonable price of a few tens of millions, um, which would be very valuable. So I mean, that's my view is that there's, there's already things that NASA do that are so valuable. Mm. You know, NASA is such a good international citizen. So is the European Space Agency when it comes to sharing data and sharing facilities. Um, and Australia shouldn't be going, oh, commerce this, commerce that quite so acquisitively as much as looking to what the mature large organizations internationally are doing to build these um, common user facilities in space that's that's my firmly held belief if i can if i firmly hold any belief about space it's that look i'm not going to argue with you that sounds fantastic and and i think that's um Let's hope, right? Uh, fingers crossed. Fingers I mean, crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, and we'll we'll just have to wait and see what happens as we get more details on what's actually happening. I mean, it's, I think it's all up in the air at the moment. You probably know better than anybody, really. Well, um, you've been to the conference. Yeah, I think the story is that basically they've got a year to write a submission saying Gosh. what they're going to do long term and what their long term funding needs to be to support that. So mm. at the moment... Um, they're, they're currently going around consulting industry. Um, they've hmm. done some general public consultations as well. And they're basically doing this huge process to decide what the space agency will do. Hmm. And then um, in a year's time, they'll, they'll get either. Either what will happen is people will lo lose the enthusiasm and it'll get shut down again. Hmm. Um, and I talked to a few people at the conference who said, oh, look, it's all very exciting, but we've been here before. Hmm. This has happened time and time again. Um, and, you know, they always thought it was going to happen and then it didn't. So it, that could happen. Um, but I prefer to think that in a year's time, mm. we'll have a proper space agency with proper funding and mm. a proper setup 
Because mm. um, as it stands, they actually haven't even decided what city it'll be in. No, no, exactly. I mean, even though talk they... about Badgeries Creek or something like that. Well, yeah, yeah, the um, at the aerospace thing. But the, yeah. they, were, they were talking about um, like as as it stands, they've said, oh, it's not necessarily going to be in Canberra, mm. but they just advertised all the roles. In and Canada. they're all in Canberra. <laughs> um, I know this because I would have applied. Yeah. But for the fact it's in Canberra. Um, nothing wrong with Canberra, <laughs> in case anyone's listening from Canberra. I love Canberra. I love Canberra. But I also love um, Sydney University where I do research. Yeah. So that would yeah. have been a problem. Um, maybe I could commute. Who knows? Maybe if we got a really fast train. <laughs> but, but yeah, like, um, I think your comment about we've, we've talked about this all before and it's never happened. I mean, it speaks to something really deep about Australia that we must be... Are we the only G20 country without a space agency? I don't know. Some statement of that form, we're the only such and such. We're the only something without one. Maybe it's the OECD. Possible. I'm not sure. I really really don't know. in, In some appropriate measure, we are the most developed country not to have a space agency. Hmm. And um, the fact that we haven't tells us about the Australian um, political system and, you know, dare I say the psyche or something, as, as something that um, rewards mediocrity and punishes excellence. And as a culture, we've got this tall poppy syndrome. We think that, you know, science is for wankers. You know, there's, there's this really... Um, it's very difficult to tell people that an Australian space agency isn't a joke. I, for one, did not find it very funny when the first meme on Twitter about the space agency, funny is enough, well, funny, okay, it was a little bit funny, but um, was the, uh, they mocked up a logo, like the NASA logo, and uh, you're laughing, you can see which one I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. What was it, the Australian Research... Space something. Space Exploration yeah, like, Australian Research and Space Exploration yeah, Department. The, the arse. Arse. No, look... And look. I don't think it's funny because that, the fact that the first thing that Australians thought was how absurd it would be to have a space agency just made me so sad. Well, no, but, but Ben, what you... Like, arse has existed for years. Hmm? Yeah, it's... um, It was a, a sort of a... Vaguely, That's even worse. It's a vaguely comedic thing, but they actually have been advocating for us to have a space agency using comedy. Um, I have several... Arts t-shirts. Uh, look, look, I like, understand. But... Do you know what, Ben? Yeah. And I will say this now on the record. Mm. Arts do not make women's t-shirts. Really? Really. I had to buy the size small, oh. which is a man's t-shirt. And I know this because I wear t-shirts. Um, That's a bit arsy of them. It is. And the men's size small, <laughs> would you believe? It doesn't have the right shape. too big for me yeah. and completely the wrong shape. So if mm. anyone's listening, make one. But it was excellent to talk to you. Thank you very much. And I'm sure we'll chat again at some point when you're next in Sydney. Or when I'm in the States later this year. I hope so. Well, thank you. That was great. You've been listening to Space Junk. If you would like to find out more about space law or the history, philosophy and sociology of science, you can follow me on Twitter at at AHandmer. That's A for Annie, H-A-N-D-M-E-R. You can also follow Dr. Ben Pope at, at Fringe Tracker. That's F R I N G E Tracker. Thanks for listening.